For NATO, 2022 has been arguably the most demanding and consequential year in the history of the alliance. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th certainly compelled NATO to demonstrate its resolve like no other event since the end of the Cold War, a period which included NATO interventions in the former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan and Libya. NATO finds itself at barely one remove from conflict with its oldest adversary and is preparing to welcome two new members, Sweden and Finland. A few weeks ago on the Foreign Desk, our guest was NATO's current most senior civilian official, Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg. Our guests this week were, a little less than a decade ago, NATO's two most senior military officers. General Philip Breedlove of the US Air Force was NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2013 to 2016. General Sir Richard Sheriff of the British Army was NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2011 to 2014. In this special episode, we ask the two generals for their assessments of how well the alliance has risen to its current challenge. Has NATO conclusively disproved the infamous 2019 judgment of French President Emmanuel Macron that the alliance was brain dead? Did NATO massively overestimate the conventional military capacity of Russia? And how has warfare evolved in recent decades? This is The Foreign Desk. Today, there is no question NATO is relevant. It is effective and is more needed now than ever. We face the most serious security situation in decades, but we are rising to the challenge with unity and resolve. What's extremely important is that we, as democratic countries, as NATO, send a very, very clear signal to Moscow and to Putin so that there could be no room for a misunderstanding or a false assumption that something would indeed be easy. Russia's war has created a far more dangerous reality for Europe, including for Sweden. I'm hopeful that these discussions can pave the way for launching our accession process and put Sweden the next step to the path to NATO membership. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our guests this week are former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, General Philip Breedlove, and former NATO Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, General Sir Richard Sheriff. Generals, I want to start by asking you both, and I will start with you, Philip, to describe briefly what I know are long and eventful military careers, but your journey to NATO, how did you get there? My NATO career actually began in the early 80s when I first came across to Europe to serve in Spain and the F-16. But the fact of the matter is, after that, I had eight tours in Europe. And that was from a captain flying airplanes and serving with the U.S. Army on the inner German border as a tactical air control party for the Army. And then up through commanding a wing at Aviano, and then through numbered Air Force, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, my last assignment as the U.S. European Command Commander and serving with Sir Richard as the 17th Secur. And Richard, what was the path you took to being Deputy Supreme Allied Commander? 
I guess my NATO journey started as a young officer, as a tank platoon commander in the first British Corps in Germany, which of course was part of the Cold War force assembled by NATO to deter the Warsaw Pact. Move on a bit. I served as a young staff officer in the Northern Army Group when I was MA to the commander, Charles Guthrie. I commanded a brigade in the NATO operation in Kosovo in the early days. Before I went to shape to work with Phil, I was the commander of the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, which was a a British-led NATO formation. My final job was as the deputy supreme commander and deputy to Phil at a time when, of course, the whole atmosphere shifted fundamentally in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and what then threatened to be the invasion of Ukraine. That invasion, of course, came about on February 24th this year, and I think that has thrown NATO's role into focus in a way that I don't think has been the case for the alliance since it was founded back in 1949. Philip, I'll ask you first, if you think back to 2014, did you imagine that that was the beginning of a trajectory that was going to lead to some sort of larger conflict? Or was there a thinking at NATO at the time, as there was across European politics, that Russia only wanted Crimea and a bit of the Donbass, and this will be another conflict that freezes forever? Well, it's a little of both, actually. So we quickly remembered 2008, where Russia invaded and occupied and still holds 20% of Georgia. And then we were recognizing what was happening in Crimea and then soon thereafter the invasion of Donbass as well. And there were those in Europe that wanted to say, this is just another aberration. We need to get refocused on bringing Russia into the West. And then there were a group, and most of my headquarters fell in this group, frankly, that said, this is the beginning of much more. And we saw in Putin then what he made more obvious in this most recent invasion, and that is it was going to be, and it was way bigger than Ukraine. We began to understand that Mr. Putin was trying to rearrange the security landscape of Europe to get back to his buffer nations and get back to the Warsaw Pact and Soviet Union lay down. Richard, are you surprised by how this latest phase of the war from February 24th has persuaded? There were obviously a lot of people, Russia's high command clearly among them, who thought this would be something of a cakewalk for Russia. Did you think that was what was going to happen? I always knew the Ukrainians were going to fight like tigers. Of course, the Ukrainians have been fighting for eight years, but they've made good use of that time. To answer your question directly, I, like many others, overestimated the Russian ability to put together a half-coherent military force, and I underestimated the sheer skill, bravery, agility, and cleverness, and total determination with which the Ukrainians have responded. I think I also underestimated the ability of the West and NATO to pull together as it has done. Philip, what do you think? Do you think there was a tendency for NATO, perhaps building up over decades, to massively overestimate Russia as a conventional force, at least? I'm not sure I would sign up to us absolutely overestimating. I think we had a strong respect for what we saw in an external way. They were refitting and refurbishing as it relates to kit. And of course, they were very demonstrative about that, showing it to us and talking about us and sort of deterring us by showing us what they were doing. 
But what became very clear, as Richard said, is the Russians, in my mind, spent a lot of money on kit. But what is clear is they did not spend an adequate amount of money on training, educating, and exercising their force. We always knew that the Sapod exercise was a bit farcical. Sapod, meaning West, was their big uh, exercise where they would defend against an aggressive NATO, of course, which also always ended in a nuclear exercise at the end of the thing. So we did not realize, I think, what we see now, which is they did not prepare their forces. They did not train and exercise their forces. Their leadership in battle has been pretty poor, frankly. And that has made a huge difference. I want to come back to that question of how we're seeing military cultures and military command evolve. But before we do that, I do want to ask you both about kit and about equipment and what you're learning from what we're seeing in Ukraine, because you both approach this from different perspectives. And I'll start with you first, Richard, your background, as you were explaining at the top, was in armour. Do you see... I guess, land warfare evolving past a point at which armour is still as useful as it was, or have the Russians just handled it extremely badly? Well, they've handled it extremely badly. And clearly, we've seen an extraordinary transformation of land warfare. I would say air land warfare with additional capabilities, particularly autonomous vehicles, both aerial and at sea, of course, drones, artificial intelligence, satellite surveillance, the use of cyber. All that has completely transformed the battlefield. I think now commanders really can, in in the Duke of Wellington's words, you know, you can see the other side of the hill now in a way you couldn't see before. But at the same time, however capable, however brave, you're not going to seize ground and recapture ground with brave men and women carrying light anti-tank weapons or anti-aircraft missiles and the like. You have got to get on there with your infantry and you've got to kill the enemy that's on there or make them surrender. And the only way you can do that is to put your people there in harm's way. And the way to get them there is under armour, supported by, as part of a overall combined arms battle, combined arms capability in which the orchestra of tanks, armoured infantry, armoured engineers, air defence, artillery, long-range missiles, etc., supported, of course, from the air, allows you to move forward to generate that sort of offensive manoeuvre capability. What makes it so much more complex, of course, is having to do it in an environment where you've got the all-seeing eye of the drone, cyber, and all the other stuff. So this makes it an exceptionally difficult task for commanders nowadays. And Philip, as you watch events unfold in Ukraine and think about what it portends, do you think there will always be a place for manned aerial platforms? When we met in Warsaw a few months ago at the Security Forum, we did discuss the more or less total no-show of the Russian Air Force over Ukraine. Is it possible, do you think, that we are evolving past the need to put pilots in aircraft? No, we're never going to get to that point. I think we're going to have a lot of what we see now we call manned-unmanned teaming as the next great step where you use unmanned aircraft teaming with manned aircraft that are enabling them and giving them the capability to strike. First, though, I want to seize on something Richard just said, which is that the importance of combined arms warfare And what we in the West have done multiple times in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, bringing all the tools to bear together. 
and along the littorals, naval gunfire and other naval fires as well. And what we saw was a complete lack of the Russians, their ability to do combined arms warfare. It is demonstrative how poor they are. I was so startled by this. I now lecture at university and some of my graduate researchers and I went back to Chechnya 1, Chechnya 2, Georgia, Ukraine 1, and now Ukraine 2. And we see the same thing over and over, an inability to truly fight combined arms, which then degrades into knock it down with artillery and sort out who's living as we move forward. And as Sir Richard said, you've got to know how to use your infantry. Russia went into some of these battles with their tanks and no dismounted infantry to support them. And the Ukrainians just chewed them up because of that lack of combining the infantry with the armor. And and as Richard also mentioned, now we are talking about multi-domain warfare in that we do that normal combined arms attack and with it, space, cyber, electronic warfare, and all these new domains in a way that have a great synergistic effect. And I think the West is moving forward in that. And clearly, Russia is stagnant and can't, at this point, even do combined arms warfare. That brings us, I guess, to those questions of military command and military culture. And Richard, how have you seen, up until you left NATO, within the British military, how military culture had changed, how command had changed? Had had it always been consistent over your career or, or was it evolving? No, I don't think it's been consistent at all. I think it's evolved to meet the needs of the campaign. And I'm afraid what's happened in the British military is that the depth of understanding of combined arms warfare involving the heavier end of the spectrum, so tanks Mm. and armoured infantry, artillery, self-propelled artillery, the use of air, has diminished as a result of the nature of the campaigns on which the British army has been committed. So, for example, the Balkans, the 1990s, Iraq, Afghanistan. These were pretty deadly, yes. Serious fighting, yes. And casualties, far too many, absolutely. And we see the costs of that all too clearly now. But ultimately... In the overall scheme of things, this was small wars. This was not industrial, state-on-state, the clash of conventional conflict. Because what we're seeing in Ukraine is closer to what happened in the Eastern Front in 1945. Mm. And so I'm afraid the British Army has moved away from that and lost, I think, that deeply ingrained capability. And I'll give you an example. The way the British Army put together a division to fight in the first Gulf War in 1991, I was a tank squadron Mm. leader in that, That depended and relied and was able to call upon really deep experience of lengthy, long-term training exercises, both in Canada and in Germany, all of which inculcated commanders right down from general to tank commander in real experience of putting together that complex orchestra. Okay, not a lot of bullets were fired, no. We were able to turn that to very good use in the desert in 1991. And I think that ability, that depth of experience has now been lost. And I think it's got to be regenerated. Just to follow that up, Richard, what do you attribute that to? Is it just a dwindling of manpower and resources? I think it's a different focus, certainly dwindling of manpower and resources. It's a cutting cost in terms of sustainability, a hollowing out as well. I'm afraid it's also down to the training opportunities. For example, the British Army have just got rid of or getting rid of the principal training area in Alberta. 
those great prairies of Alberta where the British Army was able to put together and really build up that experience of, of high-end combined arms warfare. You know, you've got to train, you've got to practice, and you've got to practice at as high a level with as many moving parts as possible. And you can do an awful lot synthetically. Yes, of course you can on computers and the like. But unless you have the real friction of putting together heavy metal in large quantities and bring in the new combined arms capabilities that Phil and I have just been discussing, you're going to find it much more difficult to put it together for real when the time comes. Philip, there's another aspect of military culture I wanted to put to you as a former American serviceman in particular. You will have heard criticisms of the US military, I'm sure, from some of the more excitable fringes of American conservatism and American conservative media that the US military is now too politically correct or, as the current preferred pejorative has it, woke. Do you actually buy that or do you think there is an argument that a more inclusive military is actually a better one? Well, We need to be intellectually honest here. There are concerns on both sides of this argument. Our military has long been an agent of change in our society. The incorporation of our African-American soldiers was not perfect, but we had African-American NCOs and officers leading in the U.S. military long before this was accepted in larger society. And we were giving people the capability to do the things that they were able to do. Great African-American leaders made a difference in our society. So there are times when the U.S. military is an agent of change and it is good. There are appropriate things that need to be done and our military has led the way. The question is degree. And when is it a political tool, vice an important societal tool? Richard, we did do an episode of the Foreign Desk as recently as last week, talking about what efforts can or should be made to get more women involved in politics. The military, of course, historically is a an even more male-dominated space than politics. Do you think there are things that European militaries could be making more of an effort with in order to encourage more women to serve? Well, it's a, a self-evident truth that, frankly, any modern military has got to include all aspects of society. And frankly, the more women who can serve as well as men, the better. A couple of points. One, it's got to be made consistent and easier for women as they perhaps become married and have families. And I'm sure militaries will be looking at that. And the second issue is that today's militaries have got to deal with any bad behaviour very, very strongly where women are concerned. And there have been a couple of egregious examples of that, which frankly must be eliminated. And Philip? So my daughter serves. She's a major (laughs) and she leads a pretty large unit. And my other daughter is a scientist supporting our special operations command. So I have a personal connection to women serving in our military and for our military. I must tell you that one of the best fighter pilots I ever flew with, one of the most, and I'll say this in a positive way, one of the most deadly fighter pilots I've ever flown with was a young woman. She did not miss her target very often. And so I believe there is a place for women in our service, and I see it getting better every day. I believe that that's an important part of our societal contribution as opposed to that political contribution we talked about earlier. It is probably traditional, certainly among men of a certain age, to start speculating idly on the 
the morally bracing effect that a stint in uniform might have on the feckless youth. There are, of course, some NATO countries, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Greece, Lithuania, Norway, Sweden, Turkey, which do maintain some sort of national service. I know that professional career soldiers tend to be a bit leery of the idea. Are you an enthusiast? I'm not an enthusiast of bringing back military conscription because I think the challenge of the professional military makes it very difficult to tie that together with a brief stint in uniform. However, in the context of the UK, I think there's a real case for some form of wider national service, not least to break down social barriers, to put all young men and women together and to give them a chance to serve their country in whatever region, whether it's social, medical, national health service, perhaps the military as well. And Philip, that goes, I think, a bit to what you were saying about the US military as an an engine of inclusion at various points in its history. What do you think about that same question? Well, when I was a young man serving in Germany, Germany had national service whereby you either came in and worked in the medical field or in your local local Burgermeister, or you could choose the military and serve a shorter tour if you chose the military. And I must tell you, I'm a huge fan of that. And part of it goes to what Richard said. I believe that the youth of our nations need to be vested in our country. Right now, we have so many, and some of them great young men and women, but we have so many that have no concept that they owe this nation anything, only that the nation owes them. And I think that's confusion that some form of national service might help. Richard, related to that is the tension that I think that does probably inevitably end up existing between militaries and their civilian well, the civilian governments they serve. And of course, every NATO member's military serves an elected civilian government. NATO's Secretary General is almost always a former politician, the current one being, of course, the former Prime Minister of Norway, a recent guest on this program. Is it your view that those two things understand each other any better than they did when you joined the military? Or is there always going to be conflict there because politicians and soldiers think about different things for different reasons? There's not always going to be conflict. There's almost certainly going to be different perspectives. And you will find, you know, the history is full of very good examples that there's differences of opinion, which if managed properly and with the right individuals become creative. I mean, the obvious example, I suppose, is Alan Brook and Churchill. But I think, you know, it's very easy for the military to be black and white, and the military will tend to be black and white and paint a picture about a particular requirement. But at the end of the day, quite rightly, it is for the democratically elected leadership to make the political judgments based on military recommendations. Where I think things can go wrong is if the military start to think like politicians. And my view is that military leadership is about understanding the military consequences of political judgment and being able to lay out the pros and cons to allow politicians to make the political calls, albeit based on military recommendations. Philip? I just love the way Richard said that. It's perfect. (laughs) I would add a couple of things, and that is the next thing that is dangerous is when military men and women fail to give their best military advice because they're worried about the political ramifications of that military advice. Our job, in my words, is to give our boss 
the best military advice we can, no matter whether we think they're going to like it or not. We're to advise them on what our expertise is and what our expertise would suggest, not on what we think is going to play well on the front page of the Washington Post. There is just one more question uh, I did want to ask you as an American, Philip, about the civil-military relationship, especially where it pertains to NATO, because, of course, in reasonably recent memory, the United States has had a president who was not noticeably keen on NATO or went away out of his way to disparage it and undermine it and who might yet again be president. Is NATO something that could potentially be threatened by just one unusual leader deciding to bring the whole thing down? Or do you think it is more solid than that? I just remind people that the American government was designed with three different branches, of course, judiciary, legislative, and executive. And they all have counterbalancing contributions to leading our country. One can make big decisions, but the other one controls the power of the purse. And another one can oversee them both as to the legality of their decisions. So certainly one person at the very top can be very impactful, but that one person at the top cannot, in my opinion, totally run off with what's going on. The sad news is that in NATO, as others will say, a lot is done on relationships and Mm -hmm. reputations, and that's where damage could be made. Richard, what do you think? If in extremis, the United States, if not necessarily withdrawing from the alliance entirely, but noticeably declining to pick up its usual end of it, could NATO survive that in the long term? I don't think NATO could. I think America remains the foundation stone of NATO and very much the leadership of the alliance. And also, of course, it translates into real strategic capability. And even if, say the sake of argument, Germany became the defence superpower of Europe, which arguably if the so-called Zeitenwender came to anything, it would do, because of the advantages of scale that you get from one single superpower investing in capabilities like strategic airlift or other enablers, that makes American capability fundamental to the alliance. Try to do that across the board with different nations, smaller nations, would be very difficult. So I think without America, NATO would become a shadow of itself, and I don't think the alliance would survive in its present form. I did want to ask a slightly more upbeat and optimistic question about the future of NATO. I'll ask you first, Richard, the NATO summit in Madrid this year, of course, we saw the leaders for the first time attending of Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, China incorporated in NATO strategic concept for the first time. Is there any reason, absent the difficulty of, I guess, ordering new stationery to accommodate a new acronym, why NATO could not be expanded to the Pacific? I think the task of NATO is very clear to protect the land borders, the airspace and the sea lines of communication of the transatlantic region and the nations who sign up to it. I think if you go broader than that, you're into a different form of alliance. So the Mm. beauty of NATO is that that task is very straightforward, very simple and underpinned by, again, that very simple doctrine of collective defense, Article 5. Where I think NATO certainly should can and probably must expand is into the post-Soviet space. Those post-Soviet republics, like Ukraine, like Moldova, like Georgia, 
Given where this thing with Russia is likely to go and the long-term challenge of being faced with deterring and containing an angry, probably defeated, vengeful Russia, probably led by a leader still determined to re-establish a Russian empire, probably still determined to swallow up Ukraine, NATO has to think very carefully, long and hard, about bringing certainly Ukraine in and probably Georgia and Moldova in as well. Philip, that is, of course, a bracing reminder that this conflict which NATO is waging at sort of one remove with Russia is probably a very long way from over. As you look ahead to the coming months, although it would be nicer to think of it in terms of weeks, but what strike you as the military hazards that NATO needs to watch for um, in the next phase of this conflict? I think the first and most simple is that this is all bigger than Ukraine. If you remember the two documents that Mr. Putin sort of handed to the United States, but he really gave it to the West about 12 days before this war. And he said, sign these or there will be other means. We know now what he meant by that. And in those documents, we see that, yes, we are now fighting and helping Ukraine to manage this invasion. But this is just step one for Russia. They are really about reorganizing the defense architecture of Europe and reestablishing that sort of Warsaw Pact Soviet Union feel with border nations. Bad paraphrasing, but weapons out, less NATO and no America in these border states and things. And so we need to realize that Mr. Putin is about a bigger problem, and that is going to be something that will continue. As long as we capitulate and reward bad behavior like we did in 08 and in 14, and if we do it again now in 22, we will see more of this in our future. And so I believe that NATO and the West, the larger West, need to look at diffusing this situation in a more permanent way now. General Philip Breedlove and General Sir Richard Sheriff, thank you both very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.